You're listening to Classic Movies Live, a radio show for Heatwave Radio, where we talk about movies that uh, are true classics. And today's movie is maybe the most classic movie of all time. I gotta say, this is our longest episode, and we don't even touch on probably most of the aspects of the movie. So uh, that's not to say we don't have a lot to say about this movie. Uh, the movie we're going to talk about today is Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 movie, Apocalypse Now. Uh, he, this movie took five years to make, three years of filming, two years of editing, which is, uh, as you might expect, absolutely absurd. That's an insane amount of time for to make a movie, especially when you, like three years of filming is already, in, is already absurd. Two years of editing is ridiculous. So... Um, this movie has a lot going behind the scenes. There's a lot to just digest in this movie. We've got a lot to say about this, and there is a lot to say about this. So, yeah, um, get ready for probably our longest episode ever. We do go through the plot in detail. Uh, so there's a spoiler warning right here for this entire episode. Don't listen to this episode if you care about spoilers for Apocalypse Now. However, if for whatever reason you've seen Apocalypse Now only up to some point, you should be able to recognize that point from what we're talking about. So there's your spoiler warning there, I guess. Um, Yeah, this movie is a lot to take in and a lot to talk about. And we are very engaged in it for, what is it, maybe two hours? Uh, Pierre, how long did we go with this? It was a little less than two hours. Apocalypse Now is an experience uh clearly we've got a lot to say about this um but yeah this movie is a big experience and uh one of the best parts of that experience is the music and particularly the song the end which intros and outros the entire movie and it's intro and outro this podcast so here is the end by the doors This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. The end of our elaborate plans. The end of everything that stands. Safety or surprise the end I'll never look into your eyes again You're listening to another episode of Classic Movies Live. Today we are talking about another classic movie, as always. Uh, Today's is... I think today's movie is one of the is widely considered one of the best movies ever made. So uh, we picked a big one. Uh, um, man, I thought I had an intro for this, and I completely forgot what it was. That doesn't matter. We are talking about Apocalypse Now. Uh, Pierre, I think uh, you actually recommended this. So do you want to know? Do you want to let us know? Like, I mean, every, I've I've heard of Apocalypse Now before. I knew bits and pieces of it. I'm sure you had as well. But like, what actually specifically turned you on to this movie? Um, I was just, I was doing a lot of, uh, 
I was doing some reading and I was watching a couple interviews with George Lucas and uh, I was very interested in his early days when he, he uh, before he actually really made anything, he was, when he was still a film student, he met uh, Francis Ford Co- Coppola um, on a scholarship or it, it was like a deal with Warner Bros because he won a, a student film and he went oh. from, uh, he went, he went from being a student at, I think it was UCLA or uh, to working with Coppola on uh, on like a relatively small film, but apparently he uh, Warner Bros gave him the choice to choose like a director to kind of shadow um, for a film production just to learn. So yeah, so that's how he met uh, Coppola, and then they went on to found a, a movie studio t- together um, a couple years later. I think it was 1970, 1969 or nineteen seventy, and that's when uh, George Lucas he helped George Lucas make uh, THX and. Uh, which subsequently bombed and then destroyed the studio that they had just created. Uh, um, but the, no, it didn't this, destroy it because Apocalypse Now would eventually be created by that studio. Oh, well, yeah, okay, to be fair, it was more like uh, uh, it, it, it temporarily bankrupted it. Um, so they went off to work with studios again for temporarily. Um, so George Lucas went on to make American Graffiti, which was uh, insanely successful. And then uh, subsequently went to make Star Wars in 1977. Where uh made The Godfather Part 1 and 2 back-to-back, uh, two of the most widely acclaimed movies of all time. Um, and then I, I noticed that uh, there was this movie, that Apocalypse Now, that um, George Lucas had a hand in, but he never made. Um, and, uh, and then Coppola uh, took a handle on it. And uh, I, I heard, I mostly heard about it because of its insane uh production uh fiasco that went on during shooting specific um yeah even post-production um, um but yeah. I, I i learned about this uh from an episode of community that kind of spoofed the documentary um of coppola uh making the movie um so i remember you recommended that documentary to me and i watched that documentary and i just wanted to point out like i don't know if there's ever a better like a different pl- or I don't think there's a good place to say this later on, but the most insane thing about this movie is, uh, well, obviously its production is pretty legendary, but the weirdest thing to me about its production is this movie was originally planned, it would have been uh, George Lucas's very first movie that he directed. Uh, He ended up not directing it, but the original pitch for this movie would have been filmed in Vietnam during the Vietnam War with George Lucas just going in as a director. Yeah, which is crazy to think about. I mean, like, yeah. that idea of shooting a war during the war is, like, like right nowadays, no one, I think, I mean, even back then, they probably were, like, no way in hell that we can consider this. But even, especially now with the, I feel kind of, uh, now that this movie industry is more established, you would never, ever see it. I, I actually almost think, if anything, you'd maybe be more likely to see this now because there are there are movies that have come out fairly recently, like documentaries that show current wars that are still going on as the documentary is released, which maybe that happened back then. I'm not really sure. But just, you know, no one in their right mind would ever say, yes, we will pay for you to go to an active war zone and make a movie, regardless of the time, honestly. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. And um, actually, there's a funny scene in this movie where uh, the main characters are in they're they're in the war and uh, or they're they're like in a firefight. And there's Francis Ford Coppola standing right there 
telling them to like move as if they're as if they're doing something. They just got to move forward. They got to make it look good for the camera. And it's like he's he's the war journalist. He's the war docu journalist or whatever. And it's I I thought I just found that scene really funny. Yeah, it, t- it really took me out of the movie because for a sec I was like, wait, like is is this like a cut from the movie or is am I back in the documentary? Um, but yeah, that, that was really funny, especially after seeing what happened. But yeah, do do you want to walk us through like uh, the plot? Yeah, um, yeah, I guess briefly. So I gotta say, I don't think. This is probably a hot take here. Uh, this movie is a Vietnam War movie, but it's really less of a war movie, and it's like it's got a story that it's trying to tell that kind of uses the Vietnam War as a backdrop for all for all of it. And like the war is important, but I don't really think this movie is about the Vietnam War, even though it it's hard to describe because. Technically, at every point, it is about the Vietnam War, and it makes points about the Vietnam War. But like the point of this movie, the story of this movie could very easily be told in a different setting and would be just as effective. And honestly, not much less effective in terms of talking about the Vietnam War. This movie is very. This movie is not a traditional war movie. Is what I guess I'm trying to say. Um, um I, I I would agree with you, but I I I don't think I've really seen it. It's hard for me to say. But, um anyway, I guess part of the reason that I feel somewhat confident in saying that is that this movie is actually based on a uh story from the nineteenth late nineteenth century called Heart of Darkness, which uh I have read. Uh I'm going through it again right now because I didn't read it very closely, but I have read it. Marlon Brando, when he filmed this movie, had not read it, so I am coming into this podcast more prepared than Marlon Brando was for the movie. Uh, But anyway, it's based on a story called Heart of Darkness, which is about one man's journey down the Congo River to um, where eventually he meets a man named Kurtz and um, has a life-changing experience with this man named Kurtz. Similarly, that's kind of a very rough version of what this movie is. Uh, we follow a guy, I think his name is Ben Willard, played by Martin Sheen. Uh, he goes up a river in Vietnam. I do not remember the name of the river, unfortunately. Uh, he goes up a river, and he is on a mission to kill Colonel uh, Walter Kurtz, who's played by Marlon Brando. Um, Walter Kurtz, his crime, he's been accused by of, he's been accused of murder by the army, which even the movie makes a big point to say kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. Not that the army can, isn't allowed to dislike him and want him dead, but like accusing him of murder in this particular war, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense because that's what he does anyway is kind of the point that the stance the movie takes. Um, anyway, he's been accused of murder by the army for killing or for ordering the assassination of four South Vietnamese, uh, officials that he was fairly certain are double agents. Uh, so Martin Sheen is being sent to assassinate him for that because, uh, he never got army clearance, and essentially what he's been doing even before that was fighting the war on his own terms. So the army's kind of been looking for an excuse to get rid of this guy, and now they have it. Uh, and so that's his mission. And along the way, they make all sorts of stops along the river, which are varying levels of surreal. And honestly, every single one of them is going to be enough to talk about on its own. So I don't think it's 
makes that much sense to summarize it here because we will get to every single stop along that river. Yeah, it, it kind of. Rem- I think it, it might have been on purpose, probably. Uh, it felt it felt kind of similar to the I- idea or story of. Uh, is it a story of the Dante, Dante Seven Circles of Hell or whatever? Dante's or Inferno. Inferno. Yeah. Yeah, where he they kind of slowly dive to Vietnam. Okay, um, I'm really glad you said that because that was basically the first thing I was going to say. Perfect. Um, it's not exact parallels because I was the second time, the third time I watched this, I was going, I was exactly those parallels every time because I'd already kind of gotten that impression. But the thing is, like, none of the places they go to correspond to a specific circle of hell, which is fair because it's not an adaptation of that. However, the further they go, the more like I said, surreal, the experiences get. And the more it just seems like they're delving sort of into madness. Um, It's just not a linear progression necessarily because, you know, the, the type of madness you have at the very end or near the very end with the bridge, um, it's a bunch of people who are pretty much resigned to their fate and they're just soldiers that are sort of disillusioned with the war. Where at the beginning, you go straight in and it's, a bunch of people who like almost don't even don't even realize the war is happening like they're basically on vacation but also killing people all the same time it's not a it's not necessarily a logical progression down in any in in a way that can be easily summarized but like each stop along the way is like a different form of madness and it's really interesting for that reason yeah it almost felt like uh the way the story was told it, it felt like uh kind of like a like okay maybe i can't think of any specific or lord of the rings the way it like not in terms of the seven circles of hell but like it was like each uh each element in the story is kind of a self-contained adventure you know like, yeah definitely um, and, and it was like because i was expecting like you said a, a war movie especially the way it was uh kind of advertised to and the way it was uh, uh filmed and especially at the start um in the first act but as you get into it, it's very much uh, a psychological kind of adventure film, which I've, I've honestly, I don't think I've ever seen something like that before, uh, personally, maybe in a horror movie or something. Um, but still, that that kind of creeping sense of dread as they move up the river was really cool. And uh, I, I wonder how much of that, like, was that a lot of that in the book, that, that element building suspense so i did mention that i've read the book i don't want to comment on it too much because like i said i didn't read it very closely yes that is definitely a point of the book uh i did not get that as much as i obviously should have from the book because i need to reread it honestly i i kind of so in preparation for this episode I watched the theatrical version of this movie twice and also the Redux version, so the first director's cut. Uh, and I also read Heart of Darkness, but I kind of sped through it, so I more skimmed it than read it. And I'm going through it again. Uh, I had hoped that I would finish a more close reading of it by this time, but uh, I haven't had the time, so I've just sort of kind of got into it a little bit. I'm very early on. But what I will say about the book is, personally, I think that the book's version of Kurt is more interesting for how it can be how he can be adapted than what he actually represents within the book because in the book he's you know he's this influential figure who's taken matters into his own hands but in the case of the book taking the matters into your own hands isn't as interesting because what he's done is he's he's filing a report 
on uh, for the oh my god, what are they called? It's really it's a terrible name. Uh, the International Congress on Savage Customs or something. Basically, he's supposed to file a report that gives Europe the uh, the uh, excuse to eliminate the native people of the Congo. Oh, uh, and yeah. so that's what he's doing. And when they finally meet Kurt, when the main character finally meets Kurtz, Kurtz is like weak on his last legs, and he's you know influential. He's got the he he's a great orator, but he doesn't really do very much. Where in this movie, also I guess once he's in the movie, he doesn't do a whole lot. But um, Marlon Brando does deliver some pretty great dialogue, even if I personally am not that much of a fan of it. And also, up until that point, we've spent so much time building up Kurtz in a really, really good way that by the time you get there, he is already this majorly influential figure. And like Marlon Brando would have had to not come into the movie at all in order to ruin that. And like, like, like he's so built up that it's almost impossible to ruin his character by that point, where I felt like the book builds him up a lot and maybe close to that. But I also didn't leave with a huge impression of Kurtz. So it looks a little less more anticlimactic in the book. A little bit more, yeah. Yeah. Um, like uh, speaking of like the differences or like how uh, Coppola kind of took this, this story, because I, I heard the screenplay was quite different from very much the story. so. And then he this is a this is not a close it. adaptation. Yeah. Well. Well, the thing is, like, because um, he actually. From the initial screenplay, I know Coppola rewrote a lot of it to more oh, right. fit like the tone of it mm-hmm. of the original. So it might have been way different. Um, but anyways, I I just want to talk about um Cop- I don't how do you pronounce his name? Is it Coppola or Coppola? I've or... always thought it was Coppola. Um, okay, Coppola. I've heard Coppola. Coppola, so I don't know that it matters. But either way, uh, I I loved. I don't. I think usually it's really hard to sense a director's work here. And I mean, from it might be because I saw the documentary, but I love how raw this movie, um, yeah. just everything in it. You can just tell they were in, well, they weren't in Vietnam. They were in the Philippines, but like everything was shot on location uh, for the most part. I'm pretty um, like there was no green screen, like no CGI stuff. Uh, everything just felt so real. And he really built a world and this vision of Vietnam War that like I I haven't really like I couldn't really imagine right um and like it, it this feels like such a a movie that like I don't think could really be made today um just in terms of like I can't imagine a studio giving people or even back then like the a studio giving giving a director the option to film like on location for for what was it eight months um um so it was a grand total like the the full time period of filming was three years three but years, like yeah. obviously he wasn't on location for the full time yeah. of that it was probably like between 10 and 15 months is what i would guess yeah but still like things like they like all the helicopters um all, all like there weren't there weren't any cgi extras everyone was real this the forest was really real they had a tiger in the movie for God's sakes, and it was in it yeah. for like half a second, but that was real too. Well, and it's I would say to your uh, to your point of it of everything being real, and I think you used a different word that I was going to bring up, but I forgot it. But like this movie, this movie had an insane budget, but it still felt very low budget in a lot of ways. Like making the best of what we have, because 
this movie, there's a lot of scenes where it almost seems like if they really wanted to, they could have cleaned that scene up and like made it really polished. But they, but it seems like this is, but it's, I'm, I'm thinking of, mo- for, for example, I'm thinking of when they attack the Vietnamese village that honestly isn't even doing anything. They just go there and attack it so they can surf. Um, yeah. Which we got to, that we got to just, we, we have to actually just pull the trigger and talk about that in just a minute. But anyway, yeah. they go and attack this Vietnamese village so they can surf. And that scene felt very like, Everything they did in that scene, it, it felt like they did it once. I don't know how many takes of that scene there actually were, but like I was watching that and nothing about that set to me looked like, oh, they probably could have done this as many times as they wanted. It was like, no, they used one shot for this, for each of these bits. bits. Yeah, that's fair. I could see that. But it, I don't think it really hurt the way it felt. No, you know? I, like I it, think it, it really it made it feel more raw. Yeah, and I really like that. Like it, even if they, I don't know how accurate that is. Like they had 240 hours of footage for this before editing. Like mm-hmm. they could have probably reshot every scene 20 times, and <laughs> we might not know. But like just the way that it was put together, and the way that I assume it was shot, really helped it because it made it feel, like you said, more raw. It made it feel real in a sense, and that's what this. That's the point of this movie. Like. Like I said, I don't think that I think this movie makes point like its point or the message of it is first and foremost about the human mind rather than about about like the Vietnam War in particular. But like this feels very this is the war, as he said in his uh, in in his speech at Cannes. He was like, this movie isn't about the Vietnam War. It is the war, which like obviously that's a pretentious thing to say, but I get what he's saying. Like this movie feels very raw, very real like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it was just, it was, it was, I really wish I could have seen, um, or if I, I get the chance to, I think I would again, just for that, for that vivid, more vivid. Oh, um, absolutely. If I yeah, see and, this coming to the Cineplex or something, I'm going to be there. Yeah, easily. Um, but yeah, so like getting into the plot and stuff, uh, what, what did you think? I guess we'll like start with like the first act. We can go up to like kind of uh, him going in, into the, before he gets into the boat, essentially, the buildup of that. Yeah, uh, so I thought it was... Uh, I mean, already from the start, it's already kind of surreal. Uh, he starts in Saigon. Uh, we see him have sort of a... We see him just do a little dance, which kind of... It's supposed to show, like, his mental state. He's on, like, his third or fourth tour of Vietnam at this point, I think. Yeah. And he's already starting to kind of come apart at the seams when he's left to his own devices. But he's very calm and collected throughout his narration. And that's the point is like inside he's coming apart because this is fourth tour of a war he probably didn't ever want to be in in the first place. But now he's just sort of resigned to it. And, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's kind of mentally about done with this. But realistically, he realizes that he kind of already he, he kind of has this mentality, I think, that like this is just what he does now. So the first yeah. the first uh place that he visits on his tour which i'm i keep jumping ahead of myself but the first place that he visits is gonna directly challenge that but anyway um and then he gets his uh he gets his mission from harrison ford and it already seems kind of it's already kind of off because there's these the the people who give him his mission they don't um i don't know it's it's weird i want to say clinical they're very like they're very sterile about it. Like, this is your mission. He's gone quite clearly insane after showing 
basically no evidence. Like they show a, they show a, they, they sent, um, have him listen to a tape where Kurtz says that they need to, that he, uh, he wants the army to kill a bunch of people. Um, he wants them to incinerate the whole country or something, which yes, I guess that's, well, yeah, that's a terrible opinion. That's yes. He's gone insane, but like nothing, they almost don't react to it. They're like, Oh yeah, well, this is the guy we want you to kill him. Yeah, so I, I, that was a really yeah. cool scene in starting kind of the theme um, and establishing that just in terms of like, I think it felt off because to me, it felt like they knew what they were saying was complete, you know, it was, like think... a hidden, it was like a hidden message in there where they're like, we want you to kill this guy because he is like bad and he shouldn't, he shouldn't be taking command, you know. But it was yeah, to, the way they said it was more like they were scared of him slash like they knew what they were saying was like ironic just in terms of like what they were doing in Vietnam in general. It um, almost feels like a business. Like the words that they're saying is, are we want this guy to we, we want you to kill this man because he is gone. He's morally corrupt and he's he's doing things that we don't like the or he's morally corrupt and he's doing in unspeakable crimes the act the way that they're saying it though is like we don't much care for this man's management style we'd like you to fire him yeah exactly like I, yeah i know what you mean by the sterile thing now like it wasn't like they were saying you got to take a man's life it was very casual um but you could i like because i i noticed there is when Harrison Ford basically says, because he says it in a weird way too, he's like, um, like when you get up the river and you find the colonel, we'd like to terminate his command. So he says that weirdly because everyone knows he's basically saying like kill him, but he says it in a very polite way. But also he he has this really weird cough in the scene because he's more of the junior officer, I think there, and mm-hmm. he I think he definitely look, feels uncomfortable and at odds with what he's just in terms of like, I don't think he's thinks it's the wrong thing to do, but like the, the thought of kind of just going like really good Colonel and Kurtz, by the way, was like an extremely decorated office at the time. So, uh, and also they don't confirm it, but it's implied that everything he did was from his, from his point of view. Well, like not really, how do I say this? It's implied that everything he did was rational, at least. Not necessarily correct, but um, he's being specifically targeted for having had, having ordered the assassination of four South Vietnamese generals, or not generals, uh, officials. And throughout the movie, while it's never specifically confirmed that they were in fact double agents, it's heavily implied. Yeah. So, yeah. So they. So in terms of what you would think, so at the very least, this movie goes out of its way to imply that whether or not you agree with him or you think he's doing something that is correct, whatever, whatever, or like whatever word you want to use, he is in fact potentially the best hope for that particular group of the military uh, or for that particular universe of the military to win the war in vietnam uh yeah potentially potentially but i guess that doesn't really matter no not Um, really because uh, and then that that's it also kind of hints towards like i mean like what i guess like just to get out of the way one of the big themes in this movie kind of honestly in in the extended cut it kind of bashes you in the head with this over and over um but the idea of just like no one really understands why they're you know 
They're just yeah. kinda, they're just kind of there. Um, and it, it, it's, it reflects at the start with uh, Willard, um, the main character, just because he's kind of like, I, I think in the, in the first scene, I definitely saw it as he doesn't, he doesn't understand what he has outside of the war, mm-hmm. you know, cause he was kind of sitting in Saigon. It was like the, like we've seen this before with uh, uh, officers um, or I, I mean, soldiers in movie uh, where, you know, they get back home and like, stuff's not the same like they kind of missed the war and stuff but uh in this case they depicted it as he was very clearly on the verge of insanity if not already there uh when they yeah. when they gave him his orders you know so he quite literally like kind of devolved into uh insanity when when he stopped fighting um mm. and that i think that the more we go into the movie we just reflected and other people like the the first uh is he a colonel no not a colonel um the first commanding officer they meets when he uh kind of embarks on his quest is uh what's what's his name do you remember he's played by Rob, robert duvall um do you want to yeah. while i look up his name do you want to quickly bring us from harrison ford scene to this scene and just explain very quickly where we're at because oh. um i i, I want to talk about this scene at length next and we'll talk about robert duvall first but i think it's important that people the listeners know like what we're actually talking about first um so yeah so once once he gets his orders he essentially from what i remember he's uh he gets on a boat uh he, he's kind of given like a squadron on a boat um there's four people there's there's the chief they call him chief uh he pilots the boat there's a guy called chef um there's a guy called lance who is a a young a young uh, famous surfer from miami and Oh, L.A. And then uh, there's the last guy is oh, what's his name? He's played by Lawrence Fishburne, which I think was one of his first roles. He looks so young. In- it was very, very early. Like he wasn't even technically he wasn't even uh, credited as Lawrence Fishburne. He's credited as Larry Fishburne in this. Yeah. So I thought that's why I thought it was like his brother. For- uh, he is Tyrone. He's Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean. OK. Yeah, so he's kind of given this crew. Uh, he's the captain of the boat, though, and it's a classified mission, so they don't know where they're going. Um, but they all start off as kind of, you know, like they get along well enough. Um, they're all sane. And then they kind of, I guess, I guess, do they boat or do they helicopter? They boat and then they kind of helicopter their first mission. Sorry, right? just, uh, I'll answer that question just real quick. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne was 14 when they started filming this. His character in the movie is 17. By the end of production, he was 17. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, hilarious. yeah, he, he gets in the boat, and they boat up to, or they uh, they go with the boat up to the mouth of the river, which is where they meet the lieutenant colonel, uh, whose name is Bill Kilgore. That's Robert DeVille. Okay, cool. Yeah, and then... Uh... I guess they he this kind of this is kind of like the big the big sequence and um there's a, there's a couple of scenes because there's the first scene where Duval enters and they're they're kind of cleaning up the last remnants of a fight I think and that's when uh Willard and Willard meets Duval or uh what's his name again uh, Bill Kilgore Bill Kilgore and then but like, Kilgore's character is just a, a fascinating start to like their journey just in terms of seeing uh the kind of the kind of man they put in it as a as a pretty high rank, relatively high ranking officer. Um, at this point, he's he seems he has so many different shades. Like he seems 
uh, very authoritative, but then also he he shows a lot of respect uh, towards towards this one Viet Cong fighter. I that... I disagree. He oh. looks like he shows a lot of respect because like. What he sees is uh, a South Vietnamese. He sees some South Vietnamese uh, milit um, militants and his own uh, soldiers. There we go. South Vietnamese soldiers and his own soldiers um, huddled around this Viet Cong soldier who ha who's holding his guts in with a potlet. And like they just kind of don't know what to do with them. He asks them like what they're doing. And uh, the South Vietnamese, one of the South Vietnamese soldiers says, um, he says, yeah, uh, he 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 wants water. He can get paddy water. And so Robert Duvall, uh, uh, Bill Kilgore, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore, he pushes all of them out of the way and like dumps his canteen on him. But the whole time that he's dumping his canteen on him, what he's actually doing is he's just berating his own soldiers and the South Vietnamese for not helping this guy. Where the guy is like struggling to try and get any of the water in his mouth, and he just sort of like pours it on him and then forgets. So, like, he has all the trappings of respect for this guy, but he's not that much yeah, more respectful. Actual... Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Like, that's what I thought at first. But then there's another scene they show uh, when they're at, at another battlefield um, where he, they, they, bring, they bring a mother and, and the, his, her daughter, I think, who's injured. And she's looking for help. And then the soldiers are like, we can only take the baby. Like, the, no parents allowed. And then uh, even though he's quite focused on something else at the time, he, he he goes up to her and he's like, no, no, of course you have to go with your child. Like, it it only makes sense. Um, so, like, that first scene, I, I kind of get what you mean. But then it felt like they were still trying to show us he has some aspects of, of uh, may, maybe not heroism, but, like, just, like, goodness in him, you know? Um, yeah, I was gonna say honestly, portrayed to be a pretty bad guy. <laughs> he has some. He's his role needs him to be at least kind of a good guy, and these are some of those flashes we get because he has a lot going against him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, essentially, he so he he has some good traits there. Um, he's he's an insanely big surf, I guess, yeah, um, which kind of ties really into. Strange. To Lance from from the boat, the boat crew. Uh, it's actually why they get why he gets them up the river or to the river as quickly as he does. Yeah, so it was like a nice little coincidence, but it was still a struggle because uh, the the only reason he kind of brought him to the river was so that he could see Lance, the professional surfer, try out the waves uh, <laughs> with yeah. him. You know, so there was a whole sequence of of an insane. Uh, contrast and tone where you have these guys uh kind of invading this this space um there's a really sad part where like there's a school of children that have to run away because they start they start shooting it up or not the school but like you know they start invading that little town mm. um a uh this kind of a suicide bomber kind of comes in and blows up one of the helicopters um and you have all this stuff but meanwhile, you have this insane uh, mu musical score playing from the helicopter, which is like kind of epic. I think it's the uh, Ride of the Valkyrie. This uh, yes, yeah, insanely epic song accompanied by them destroying the entire place. And then you also kind of right after this, you have the the lieutenant colonel uh, forcing his soldiers to, to ride the waves while they're proceeding to get bombed like around yeah. them. Not his, only on the beach where he's cheering them on, but also while they're surfing, and everyone's like, 
Like, dude, it's it's not safe to surf here, but he's just standing there like, of course it's safe, I'm here, you know? And uh, that, all those things put together, just, like, he's an insanely chaotic character, and it's such a crazy scene, but I think it really captures the start of, like, the, the craziness, but this was more kind of dark humor-esque. Um, yeah. But also, it definitely shows the different aspects of how you could view, you could view this the war as this huge, epic, heroic battle, you could view it as uh insane tragedy where like people's homes are getting destroyed and then you can also see it as this kind of farce where like like the soldiers don't even really care about the war they're just doing their own thing you know so and um i gotta say i would say like to bring this all the way back to our uh dante's inferno um analogy i think this part actually does pretty decently represent uh, the opening of hell, the limbo, where in Dante's Inferno, that's mostly philosophers. So he just hangs out with a bunch of philosophers. But like, um, this is a good, the, the point of limbo, uh, if I can be so bold, is to sort of give you a taste of what's to come. And that's what this does, is it really like shows you, this is this is where we're starting from. This is the base madness we're starting at. And um, you know, this character or the, the character, the Lieutenant Colonel, he's already pretty in, he, he's like by ours, by anyone's standards, who's watching this pretty insane, but he's very comfortable being there. And he sees the war like this, this is his dream. He wants to be here. His like the, the line of his that sticks with me most. And he's got a lot of good ones. Like it's, there's a lot of competition is at one point near the end of his, uh, about the this is actually about the time when I think Charlie or not Charlie Sheen Martin Sheen's character sort of gives up on him and decides we got to get out of here this guy is crazy he squats next to them now shirtless because he's getting ready to surf and he goes someday this war is going to be over and he seems really sad about that in his delivery like he would if it was up to him he'd be fighting this war until the end of time because he's really happy being here yeah that that, that was kind of a the first contrast, I guess, to the main character, just in terms of, uh, he, like, he he needs the war, but in kind of a, a sad way, Lieutenant Colonel, who is, like, living in on surf and be dangerous, and uh, it, it's, like, one of those moments when he says that where you realize, like, this guy, he's, he's not going to be happy with just, like, the normal life, you know? Like, after all, after all, he's, all the power he's been given and all the, all the crazy things he's able to do with his with his role like uh it just you know it won't be the same and you so. really and i feel like with all of these characters with all the characters it's very clear and the movie makes a point to show that none of these characters is going to go back to a normal life or you know be the same after the war and it's interesting that all of these characters for all of these characters that means something different like for this guy, he's going to go back to the war and he's going to be really sad, but he's not going to be sad because he's lived through hell. He's going to be sad because he doesn't have the job he wants anymore. Yeah, and but unfortunately that job is, you know, a big part of it is killing people. So Oh yeah, uh, he's a maniac. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh it's it's tragic. It's, it's funny, but it's like it's also very real sad Ken. But yeah, honestly that whole sequence though, you can tell that's where most of the the money went. Um, it was just an insane, like such a cool experience. I could probably watch like that scene multiple times because uh, mm-hmm. of all the how much fun it is, but also like all the conflicting emotions. Um, yeah. Anyway, so and then I think that's where the first act ends. Then we kind of get into the the boat crew cruising up the river, 
and they're I believe their their first stop was it the Playboy the Playboy show? So yes, I can't think of another one. Um, they get to a uh, a U.S. No, no, it's um it's getting mangoes. That's the next stop, the first stop they have. Oh, okay, yeah. What happens? And this is actually this is actually interesting because this doesn't happen in the theatrical version. It only happens in the Redux version. They steal Lieutenant Colonel's surfboard. Oh yeah. And uh, the lieutenant colonel sends helicopters out up and down the river for a few miles to like, uh, with, with a radio message, please give me back my surfboard. It's a really good board. And I know you're a good person. So please give me my board back. <laughs> that was actually hilarious. I never thought like I'd hear his voice. Here you go, like two minutes later. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, they... The- they stop they hear that and then they go and try and get mangoes yeah this definitely felt like one of those it was mostly just meant for bonding honestly right because this is where we learn about chef um this is where we get to uh, learn a little bit about chef's character who is a saucier specializes in sauces yeah it's not a very subtle scene he just kind of lists things about himself that he likes um, because he seems kind of nervous and he wants to talk Hmm. so and in that sense, like, yeah, it's not great, but like, it's a it's a cute little sequence where uh, they were they're aiming to get some mangoes, but then uh, they they run into a tiger, and then they just run back to the boat, and they're all freaking out. Um, so it's like a cute like kind of first little adventure. We get we get to hear more about Chef. I think we kind of sense the dynamics of of the group. Well, the um, important thing here is it shows us that Chef like really doesn't want to be here. Obviously, a lot, most of the characters in this movie don't want to be in Vietnam for the war. But Chef, like, they meet a tiger, uh, they panic and run back to the ship, and Chef freaks right out. Not that he shouldn't be freaked out, but, like, um, he freaks out way more than anyone else. Most importantly, way, way more than Martin Sheen's character, who's our reference point. Um and it just shows us that Chef is, you know, not necessarily, I, I don't want to say unhinged, because that would imply, like, that you know. That was wrong to freak out like that. Yeah, no, but he's he's not ready for this. He doesn't, he shouldn't be here, and he's not going to be able to handle whatever's down the road, because this is still very early in the movie, so, like, there's more stuff coming, and he's probably, and he's already not able to handle this, which, I mean, it's a tiger, so sure, but like, just seeing Chef freak out like that, I think is a really important character. Maybe more so than his exposition. Yeah, I could see that. The uh, it, it also gives us like the honestly the whole most of the crew except for the chief, I would say. Um, so Mr. Clean, uh, Lance, and Chef are all are all rookies. It feels like you know they don't understand intricacies of war. They all they all kind of see it differently. I think Mr. Clean is seen as like kind of more enthusiastically there, like he. He doesn't really want to be there, but I think his innocence kind of allows him to like feel a little heroic, you know, um, in what he's doing. Yeah. And then uh, chef, chef, yeah, made it very clear doesn't want to be there. He wants to be a chef at home. Uh, and then Lance, Lance was just kind of along for the ride, you know. He seems he's kind of portrayed as a character that never really had a, a problem in the war getting Lance put in. Is- Vietnam, you know? Honestly, Lance's descent into madness is kind of the most interesting because he just kind of goes along with everything until he's basically so he's he's already so done with everything pretty much right after the first encounter. And then he has to stick it out for the entire time. And he just goes very quiet, very quick. 
Yeah, we don't really get much of it. Um, but yeah, anyway, so like their next their next stop was uh, the, the Playboy show, where it's like a an army base, and coincidentally they stop to refuel, and they they get to they get free tickets to a show where the some Playboy bunnies from that year are are there to give a show to the troops, mm-hmm. and I guess rally them uh, or cheer them up, and then uh, they they essentially kind of get chased off because everyone is really wants to like get their signature slash touch them. And, uh, and then, yeah, they kind of jump back on the helicopter after being there for, like, five minutes and then have to take off. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't entirely get, like, this was also, like, a very self-contained scene. I don't entirely get the point of it. Um, I think this was one of the more, um, I think this, obviously every scene up until now has been very critical of the war. I think this was probably the most critical of the war. Because this is showing that, like, people who were there for to see this Playboy show, like, that was the biggest event of their year. Which, I guess, if you're, if you're fighting a war and you get entertainment one night, it's going to be the biggest event of your year. But they were also so immature about it that, like, I think this is showing that the people fighting the war are a bunch of kids. And that's, um, so that's part of what they're showing is, like, no one who here should be here. And I guess even beyond that, this is reinforcing Kurtz's point because up until this ne- up until this point, we've gotten a lot of uh, we've actually gotten quite a bit of information on Kurtz. And one thing that Kurtz is very very upset about is that he doesn't think that the American military is taking this war seriously, and that if they did, it would be over very quickly. And um, this kind of reinforces that because these people don't want to be here. Like the people that they meet at the Playboy show, they don't want to be here fighting. They want to, they're, you know, they're, I, I guess we see them at a Playboy show, so they're not going to be there trying to be stoic. Yeah, but it's so. just showing us how immature they are. And like, that's reinforcing Kurtz's point of the people that are fighting this war are kids and we need soldiers. And these are not soldiers. And I think yeah. that's the point that that scene is trying to get across. That's true. I also like the the way that they were kind of going for it. It it almost I I don't know how intentional it was, but it felt like it was like they were begging, you know, like begging. Like once the helicopter was taking off, there were even people like hanging on to it afterwards. Yeah, you know? and it, it's not entirely clear if it was like as a joke, you know, but it it was almost like a a take me with you vibe, you know. I mean, like, the guy please, who hung like, on need... for like, sorry, the guy who hung on for like three minutes, you know, you don't do that if it's, if it's entirely a joke. A joke. Yeah. So, uh, st- that, that's definitely kind of the vibe I got is kind of subtle insanity. It like kind of p- mostly played off as a joke, but, um, deep down it's more of a cry for help. They need something, especially cause I thought the, the contrast between like the, the, the playboy bunnies coming, like. Just it, it felt kind of like a an establishment message, you know, just like they're here to to please you for a short period of time, so you like you won't you won't like completely give up on the war, but like but then they're like they just leave, you know, yeah. like, they don't really care about the war. They're just there to kind of get paid, um, and they don't really care about the soldiers either. That's what it felt like. You know? mm-hmm. um, so it, it, it yeah, it felt like this thing where it's like the rich the rich are sending these kind of poor kids to fight while the they get to stay at home and all they have to do is kind of please the soldiers once in a while to keep them enough yeah um but yeah like it was i wouldn't say it was a great scene but like it, it was definitely interesting oh uh, dude what was next there was i'm actually um okay i thought you cut out there uh no, 
Because I know the the Playboy bunnies come back, but I don't think it's that quick. There, no, there are quite a bit later. There are a couple scenes where they run into other boats on the river. Um, I think that this is where it was where they they shoot up some innocent Vietnamese people on a boat when they were inspecting it, um, just from frightened nerves, which was like you know just kind of furthering how how kind of clueless these guys are and and what they're. Well, it's also because so what happens is they they meet a ship and it is uh, it's policy that they're supposed to inspect any civilian ships they come across. So Chief in, insists that they inspect this ship as it's coming down, and um, they do that, but no one really wants to. And actually, like Martin Sheen's character uh, Willard, I keep saying Martin Sheen's character Willard specifically recommends against it, um, but they inspect this ship and. Chief is very aggressive about it. Like tensions are rising this entire time. And eventually one of the Vietnamese, so uh, chef inspects a yellow barrel and one of the Vietnamese people on the ship runs towards that barrel. And because she's running towards that barrel, Mr. Clean gets uh, very nervous and starts shooting up the whole boat, at which point everyone starts shooting the boat and they end up killing this entire ship full of people over what turns out to be uh, there's a puppy in the barrel. So there's no reason they needed to do that, and they just unnecessarily kill all these people on a fishing boat. Yeah, that was, that was actually such a sad scene. Yeah. Um, it, in, yeah. T- in terms of, like, the, the Vietnamese were completely complying, and they really did nothing wrong. It's, and, and, like, they didn't even want to search the 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 boat it was like the chief chief who who kind of i guess is the second in command of the boat he he tells them to search it just because you know um yeah. and everyone else really didn't want to do it but they they kind of did it anyways while he was yelling at them and and then yeah then they just all die for no reason it's just terrible to see um because again they didn't have to be there you know mm-hmm. uh so yeah it was a nice or not nice but it, it was a cool just development for for these guys you know um and it really i think it really matured the movie like that was one of the points where the movie kind of takes a turn for the worst yeah. in that because i'm pretty sure this the scene after is when they meet the playboys again right um after spending i think it's a few because they're on this river for a few several so yeah so they they re-encounter the playboys who who ran out of gas or something they crashed at another uh oh i don't think they had a, they had they may or may not have run out i think they were just stationed they were just uh, holding over there and head on back. Like oh, I think that's just a stop for them. They may or may not have had out of gas, but I- yeah. Um, and it's at this this station that things definitely are off. Uh, none of the soldiers are really responding to to Willard, who's like he's a captain. Like usually in this movie, is treated with pretty good respect. Um, but then like no one no one knows who the commanding officer is. Everyone's just kind of walking around aimlessly. Hmm. Uh, and that's when he makes he ends up making a deal when he he meets I think it was was it Hugh Hefner? Was that supposed to be Hugh Hefner? It was um, probably supposed to be Hugh Hefner. I don't okay. it, it definitely was not. Uh anyways, like the the guy who who, who came in with the Playboy girls, he, him and Willard negotiate a deal for two barrels of gas for two hours of time with the girls for his boat crew. Uh, and then we get these really awkward scenes with them kind of getting to know the girls, but it, it wasn't really like this, the scene. I, I don't really know what it was meant to do. Cause it, it felt kind of a far cry from the movie in terms of theming. Cause it, it just felt like a, a scene that was showing 
that women were kind of just seen as objects by these soldiers. Yeah, it kind of went a lot. Like before that scene, I symp- I empathized with everyone in that boat. I was like, oh, these are all really good characters, and I feel bad for them. And after that scene, I was like, I don't like these people very much. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're the... just sort of they're they're hanging out with these girls. So what's happened is uh, Willard. I think you said this. Willard traded some fuel for an hour with the girls, and they're all hanging out with these girls, but really they're just trying to have sex with them, I guess, maybe obviously, because that kind of is the pretext anyway. But these girls are trying to talk to them, and they're not listening at all. Not even a little bit. Yeah, so it was, I, I, I guessing it might have been kind of furthering the point of, like, these, these guys are just so far gone with things that she just are kind of at their primal instincts, you know? Like, first the scene where they just kind of kill people. Yeah. Um, and by the way, that scene, they, they really enjoyed it after, like, the first period, you know? Because um, I remember Chef, who was, like, mostly portrayed as a pretty nice guy, he starts saying, like, like kill them all, like, get these motherfuckers and stuff like that. Um, and then that's swiftly followed by this scene where, again, like, these girls are kind of trying to get to know them and they're they're kind of ignoring them and just trying to have sex with them, you know? So mm-hmm. that was really weird. This scene actually wasn't in the, the theatrical version. No. Um, which, uh, nor was it in the, the final cut, right? Was I'm it pretty not? Sure. Uh, it was in Redux, which, so there's like, just to clarify, there's three cuts. There's the theatrical, which is about two and a half hours long. Uh, there's Redux, which is 43 hours and 15 minutes long. And that's like a lot of scenes put back in. Um, and then there's the final cut, which I think this was one of the scenes that was cut. I believe the final cut is only three hours. Yeah, it's a little shorter. Um, but I could definitely see why. This was probably the least. Was, yeah, again, it just felt kind of awkward. Um, I don't really think it developed the themes that well or or the characters in a way that was really important, you know? Um, I do think this this scene wasn't useless. It did add a lot to those characters, and it was a pretty big, char- it was a pretty big character moment for all of them. But also, like... It wasn't super important. You could definitely cut this. Yeah. I, I did think, though, it, it was haunting to watch, though, especially with the... Yeah. It added a, an extra layer of of madness, you know, because it, yeah. it would have been kind of weird if we went straight from the first military camp we find on the river to, like, the last one they find, which is the next scene, I'm pretty sure, um, where they, they're cross, they're going under this, this military bridge, and it's literally, like, the embodiment of hell in this yeah. image where uh, i'm pretty sure like like there's fire and stuff people it some soldiers like... are trying to chase down the the boat it's so scary yeah it actually the next scene um i believe it's the next scene i think you're right about that uh actually looks like hell like they're going through the gates of hell yeah and like everything about it was haunting there was uh willard is the only one that or willard and i think it was lance I believe or so. Willard and Lance get off, and they're they're kind of going through some of the trenches, and they no one no one really knows who the commanding officer is again. But this time they're responding to him. But it's more like like I don't care, you know, like like we have stuff to. Do. And uh, there's there's a couple scenes where you see he meets these two this one guy who's at a at a machine gun turret, and he's just kind of shooting into like almost emptiness like he doesn't really know what he's shooting at but he hears vietnamese talk and he's just like i'm gonna shoot in this area until i hear don't hear these you know uh mm. and just stuff like that it was just pure chaos and then willard basically says at the end like uh that he kind of embodies that statement by saying 
there is no commanding officer there anymore just because like it's not about there's no order of command it's just people shooting people you know so mm -hmm. crazy scene though is really haunting to watch yeah this is where and also what i thought was really interesting again going back to our dante's inferno metaphor or uh analogy here uh at the at the very beginning of that scene where they get to the bridge where they're just seeing the bridge basically on the sides there's all of these american soldiers who just want to go home who see a boat and they immediately start running like into the river towards this boat and the way that they all get left behind it looks a lot like the river sticks which is uh from greek mythology but also like a very important river in dante's inferno because dante's inferno is based on the Greek underworld. Um, but it's the river of souls where all of these, all these people are basically just being left behind as they are trying to do anything to get away, which I thought was a really, I thought that was a really powerful image. Yeah. I, again, it's still building the insanity of it. Now, now you just have soldiers who will literally do anything to leave. They don't even know where the boat's going because the boat's going down river, right? Oh yeah. It's going the but, wrong way. Yeah, They're just they so happy to see any way to, go anywhere and they have like their bags packed and everything so yeah the, i think this was like probably end of the second act um just, i would say this has got to be the end of something so yeah the end of the second yeah. act uh where it, it feels like they've kind of finally descended into into well first of all they they mentioned it's the last military being americans mm -hmm. um, on that river so now now you're really entering into the unknown and yeah. uh, that's that's where we get our first uh i guess spoilers this is where we get our first death scene um mr clean no was it did mr clean die before that or after no mr clean dies right after right after okay i and it was by oh he just gets shot yes he gets multiple shot times they, from the trees yeah they they encounter some Viet Cong in the trees and he gets no it was right before you're right he gets shot before and so actually before this we have the scene with the french uh with the french people Yes, which was also not in the theatrical cut. No, and I I really liked this. This was like one of my favorite scenes because what happens is they um, so Mr. Clean has just died. He they they were ambushed and um, they were ambushed because Lance, uh, who's already going pretty loopy by this point. Apparently, the actor was actually on drugs for this entire movie, <laughs> so that uh, that actually really helps his character. This is like I'm never going to endorse drugs on this show. But my God, it actually improved his performance. Um, anyway, he uh, he takes out a um, smoke grenade and just like opens it up and spraying smoke all the place. And that gives away their location. And they get ambushed by a bunch of people in the trees. And um, Mr. Clean dies. Yeah, and, and there was such a sad suit. That actually really yeah. hit. Well, in, in any other movie, it would have seemed overly ham-fisted. In this movie, it definitely didn't. But... He dies while he's listening to a recording from his mother that that she sent him because they've just gotten mail. Uh, and, and she's talking to him in a very like, it's not well, like a tragic way. That, I think that's what makes it more because the yeah, way she's it's talking, it's like she really expects her son to survive. Like she can't imagine a world where her son doesn't make it through the war, right? It's very casual. Like she says, uh, her exact phrasing on it, she goes, come home soon. Well, not too soon, but soon. And stay out of the way of the bullets. And you, and she says, like, that's the end of her message, which she says, as you see him lying dead on the boat. Yeah, uh, with uh, uh, just kind of crying over him. Yeah. Really powerful. Because I, 
it's crazy how well that worked just because like you you don't even see the people that killed him you know like it was a very out of nowhere sequence yeah it just happened and there's like no narrative that kind of builds up to it and i i think it was partly because how they really established him as an innocent guy that's kind of over his head you know uh, more than any any of the others on um kind of i felt like he was kind of putting on this tough guy persona but he really didn't know what he was getting into and uh yeah having him especially him be the first one to die really hard to watch so um, um, prop, props to that I, I honestly rarely feel that sad when i see a death, death that that one actually yeah and then and then yeah and then we do have the the french funeral uh, as well as there's a there's a quite a fancy dinner scene because they it's like these uh french i guess they they were from when the french uh colonized vietnam and they were just yeah. kind of the remnants the remnants of an old empire and I think this is this is another scene that I think is really, really powerful and that I'm a little surprised that Francis Ford Coppola decided to take it out of the original cut because um, and he did leave it in the final cut, apparently. But yeah, uh, this scene. So they they meet up with some French, uh, basically remnants, like the remnants of the French army or not even the French army. It's just one guy's plantation. Uh, that's been there for 70 years, he says. So back when the French colonized French Indochina, Vietnam, uh, and they have dinner with them. And while they're having dinner with them, the French um, patriarch mostly just kind of discusses the war with Willard. And obviously he's angry because as far as he's seen it, this is his home, you know, that being attacked, even though they are, I mean, they're the colonizers and this, the... And this war is bigger than just against France, even though that's what it started as, I guess. But um, what's what I think is really interesting about this scene, and the reason that I like this scene so much, is he says uh, he has a line. He says, um, "We French are fighting for." I don't remember. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, "We French are fighting for something, and you Americans are fighting for the biggest nothing in history." Because uh, unlike America, France had a real stake in this war. And I guess America, I'm, I'm sure someone is going to listen to this and tell me, yes, America had a huge stake in this war. And that's not wrong, but France was there before. America wasn't in Vietnam until the war. So, like, the French people in Vietnam, as far as they're concerned, are fighting for what they have always considered to be their lives, even though, you know, they it's it's not their country, but they've been there for longer than any of them have been alive anyway. Um, I don't know. I'm hoping I'm not saying that. I, I, hope, I hope that doesn't come across bad. Am I saying something bad? No, no, of course not. It, it definitely was a really interesting philosophical take take on it. Um, I, I can see why they cut it. Justin, I, I, I think it's one another one of those scenes where it feels like it's kind of bashing you over the head with, like, ooh, like the U.S. This is a wasted war. Like you shouldn't be here. Um, they don't know what they're doing here. And, but they were saying it verbally, which I, I thought was a little... It wasn't subtle enough, but I also, and I can see why they cut it just in terms of it, in some ways it does break the pacing because we're confronted with like the last layer of, of civilization. Um, and then we're confronted with like the nicest thing we've seen in the movie <laughs> since, since they left. Mm-hmm. So just in terms of like that descent to madness, I can understand why they would cut it out. Um, especially because it is a rather long scene. I want to say it's like 20 minutes. Maybe I think 20, you're right about that. 25 uh um, but i do like the idea of it and i i def i actually agree when i i, I thought it was 
one of the more interesting and and, and really cool to watch uh, because it wasn't. It, it also brought in like just the another point of view, you know, mm-hmm. on a war. Because I I honestly didn't realize like France. Well, I knew I think I knew France was there at one point, but I didn't know how much of a vested interest they would have in Vietnam and the oh, way. He was, ex- yeah, it was their colony. Yeah, and the way the 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 guy explained it um just in terms of like we lost world war ii uh so swiftly like this this is our place we're not gonna lose this and it was kind of like it in in terms of like a defeated man you know yeah and that he kind of knows he doesn't he lost his home but he still refuses to leave because he's like if i leave then i i would have admitted defeat not just for himself but for his family and also for like in his eyes kind of france at large you know yeah and i actually think so i understand like you said as well uh why this scene was cut because i i really think that i think the scenes that were cut that were in the redux version that weren't in but weren't in the theatrical version were mostly the scenes that kind of beat you over the head with the point and uh beating you over the head with the point in this movie is still more subtle than in a lot of other movies i've seen even if it's not necessarily very subtle um, like this, this scene isn't that subtle, but like I've seen entire movies where nothing is nearly as subtle as this <laughs> scene. And they're literally telling you what's happening in the scene. But also I think the reason that I like this scene as much as I do is, um, this is kind of, is kind of the fact that it does break the pacing. This, this scene comes kind of out of nowhere. And it's once we're already like deep into the belly of the beast that is this river in Vietnam. So we've been like, all of our characters are slowly going mad and we're seeing it very like viscerally by the time that we've, uh, that, that Mr. Clean died. Uh, but at this point, like this is sort of a respite from it. And it feels almost dreamlike at this point, because this scene is so out of place, but in a very well utilized way that it seems almost like when this scene starts and when it ends, in some respect, you're almost not even sure if it happened in the first place. It almost certainly did, because like there's nothing to indicate that this didn't happen. But it's such a individual like bottle episode on this river, and also like there's a deep fog over the whole place. All of the characters are like very abstract, almost. It's it seems like like this this just seems very dreamlike which to me reinforces that madness that they're all experiencing as they go down the river even more just through the fact that there's this scene that kind of gives them a respite from everything and yet still afterwards they still have to just move on like it's like a rest area in a video game it almost doesn't mean anything yeah i feel that i in a way, I can see like like the calm before the storm kind of idea, maybe behind behind the pacing. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it I it's like the definition of like a, a scene that would not be in a theatrical release, but would be in a director's cut, just because of like it's. I think it's an amazing scene, but unfortunately, it just doesn't fit the pacing, and I I don't really think it does enough for the characters to really mean anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, it's very interesting though, um, and I was really happy I got to see it. Um, kind of the thought process behind it more when I watched the documentary as well. Yeah, so that was really cool. Um, and then and then we kind of move on. Uh, where 
another another person on the boat crew dies, which is Chief. Um, he dies in a very unceremonious way, I would say. It was a very odd scene. It's where pretty awful, actually. Do you, you want to talk like, about it? Yeah, so again, they get ambushed, but this time they're being ambushed by arrows. Uh, like the very first thing that ha- the very first person to even encounter one of these arrows once they start getting thrown at the boat, uh, Lance just like catches one and it doesn't do anything, so he just breaks it apart and makes himself a little hat. Uh, but um, so because they're just being ambushed by arrows, uh, Willard says, um, you know, stop attack! Don't don't fire back! Like these are these are just toy arrows! Like we're not gonna get attacked! We're not gonna get hurt! This is fine! And right after he says that. And everyone on the boat stops firing. Uh, Chief gets impaled by a spear, an actual full spear that does kill him. Yeah, and I was, it was so shocking. It was such a confusing sequence. I just, I don't know how I feel about it. Just in terms of like, it felt almost comedic at first. Mm-hmm. And then, and then like, and then this guy kind of like, it's like the one spear that they throw hits him. And he kind of dies yeah. out of nowhere uh, for not really much reason. Um, you know, I I just I don't understand why because it, it almost like this scene also almost felt like a dream because of how ridiculous nonsensical it was. Um, but I, I guess it was kind of sad in terms of the the chief was kind of the the only other person that Willard I think respected in a way. You know, yeah, uh, he was a relatively he, he or he was in command of the boat before. Before. Well, he was in command of the boat, and of everyone on the boat, aside from aside from Willard, he was the only real voice of reason. So I think that might have been the purpose of this scene, is to get rid Take of the only away. other person. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I don't see him working that well in the last scene. No, not at all. Or, or the last sequence. So, yeah, and then after that, there's a slight pause, and then we enter into the, the final kind of, they, they finally, they get to the end of the river. And they are they discover the the huge swath of people that uh, Colonel Kurtz has beneath him working uh, watching him watching the the boat kind of dock and that that was just a haunting the cinematography there was amazing just how haunting that scene was encounter the entire tribe yeah all just staring them staring at them mm-hmm. was so freaky to see and it really set the tone after the the french dinner scene of it's like oh we're back we're really back into it now and uh yeah and honestly i i'm not gonna lie i i do really feel like the the final the climax was like a letdown i actually agree i think that the lo- the movie loses a lot of its momentum once it gets to the last part and um I know. So again, this is a hot take on this. Like, I don't think I'm in the I'm in the popular opinion here. But when we get to so right after this point that we've just said, this is where he's come into Kurtz's camp, and uh, Kurtz's camp or Kurtz's. So Kurtz has under his command an entire group of like one entire native tribe, uh, some defected. Uh, Viet Cong soldiers, I think, some defected Americans, and probably some defected South Vietnamese as well, and Cambodians. He's got he's got a lot of he's he's got a pretty big force under his command. And uh I honestly don't think Marlon Brando knocks it out of the park with Kurtz on this. I I don't like Kurt, and it's not because I think he's a very good villain. I think it's because he's very pretentious and he's like I I went into this movie knowing that Marlon Brando was not prepared to do this role. 
and an unprepared Marlon Brando is better than like a prepared most actors. But also I really noticed that Marlon Brando was completely unprepared for this role. Most of his dialogue I thought was, even if it was interesting, it was nonsensical and it was delivered weird. And like, I just didn't love Kurtz. Yeah, I, I thought it was really unfortunate. Um, I remember you telling, talking earlier about how how well the movie built this guy up. Mm. And there was this uh, kind of slow analysis of his character before we meet him through Willard, who's doing his research and talking about uh, how how insanely successful he was, how how he could have been a, like a general very soon if he, he kept at it, and uh, and how maybe how similar they were, and you know, but. But then when we finally get to this guy who is taken under command like this, uh, not not under his, not even under his command, but like they religiously are follow him. Yeah. And when we finally meet him, I, I just can't help but think like this guy doesn't really seem how that does... good. You're like, how, how did he do it? You know, I don't buy yeah. it. Anymore. How does he inspire this fervent of a following? Because sure, he's interesting, I guess, but he's not that interesting like yeah. he's not he's not an ins i don't see him as an inspirational figure once we actually meet him yeah and and then the scenes he has like i agree like i just i don't i honestly didn't really understand what he was of it i i understand this one part it seemed like the point he was trying to get across was was that the war they were fighting he's basically saying he thinks he, he knows a way they could do it better mm -hmm. um and that that's why he, he's kind of explaining his reasoning for what why he he ended up this way uh there was there was a cool scene where he's one of his last scenes where he's talking about how if or he I, I think it was he noticed that he was working when he was working with special forces he noticed these people that they were very they were very good people they they had they had families they were loving they were caring but when they had to kill they would kill with no remorse uh and i that i that's all i really remember from his but also i remember when he was saying that, it was him basically explaining what we technically could have already known had we been paying it if we were paying attention to when he's um, when Willard is doing his research on this guy. He's basically saying, if I had a force of really good men, uh, and this is what I mean by really good men, then I would be able to win this war alone very quickly. Which you know is it's not nothing information, but on the other hand. Technically, we knew this already because it was the subtext of everything that Willard is learning about this. Yeah, so, like, it's not even stuff we didn't already kind of assume about the character. Yeah. And it's not even delivered in this interesting way. It's just Marlon Brando kind of monologuing in the dark about mm -hmm. whatever comes to his head. I don't know. And, like, again, this I, I might be because of me knowing what happens or like how it was filmed but you could after watching the documentary and then seeing this you could really tell they 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 did improvise basically the whole entire ending yeah uh, just in terms of they didn't understand well first of all they had to rewrite rewrite marlon brando's um because of his uh his size like the character he was supposed to play i think it was supposed to be this like intense uh alpha male type uh warlord you know I would and, definitely have assumed that he would have that his character had he been exactly what Francis Ford Coppola initially intended would have been a lot closer to like George Patton or General Patton in Patton 
you know, this, like you said, very intense alpha male dude, but like a very imposing charismatic colonel. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, instead we kind of, I, I think, I th- especially because like, I think Marlon Brando, like given his, his stature, like he's a pretty tall guy, you know? Yeah. Um, he's quite, he could be quite intimidating, but like, the, I, I guess it was because of the weight, but like, and the way they film him, he's dressed in these really drab, boring outfit. It's just this all black, all black kind of loose fitting pants and shirt which uh they said was to to mask his uh his weight um and he's he's definitely the leader of that area like there's never any question of that however he's not very imposing like he says so many cringy things too like uh at one well i i don't want i'm 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 gonna skip that particular quote because it leads us into my favorite character of this movie but uh his last line that he delivers, or not his very last line, but his last speech that he delivers is he's talking about how uh, the American military expects its soldiers to be ruthless, but it won't let them write the F word on their helicopters because it's obscene, which is true, but it's also just such a cringy line. Like, this is the guy you decided to follow? Wow, he sure is deep for a (laughs) 14-year-old. Yeah, I, I don't know what was going... Again, like, it was obviously, like, improvised. Or it felt kind of improvised. Yeah. And not really attached what the entire movie was leading up to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that was, like, unfortunate. Especially because, yeah, I, 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 felt, I felt kind of this insecurity coming from him, too. Uh, from Marlon Brando's character. I mean, that maybe that's why. Like, he was playing the character as kind of insecure. Because in the end, I, I think uh, Kurtz does kind of in a way admits that he doesn't entirely understand the world and he's kind of given up on it and he doesn't he, he doesn't really feel like he belongs as their leader you know it's mm-hmm. kind of happened uh which is why the movie is the way it does but it was just unfortunate i i don't know how else to say it. you could tell it was the movie really had something going for it and then this this third act was just a really overly long overly dialogue focus too complicated uh kind of a mess if i'm gonna be honest i mean amazing amazing set though amazing (laughs) amazing the production design in that for that yeah yeah i will say the ending was incredible though like the very very end of this movie was great like the last scene oh yeah the the scene uh essentially colonel kurtz gets finally gets assassinated yeah which which again that the going into that scene felt a little weird because i i don't know why all of a sudden he has the the opportunity to either just walk in and assassinate Kurtz, I guess it was because the tribe was doing something else, but uh, they, they juxtapose uh, the killing of Kurtz to the killing of this uh, cow that... It's a water buffalo. Okay. Water buffalo. <laughs> uh, and, and the way they kill it, uh, it was real. They Again, this wasn't a movie that could be... This scene couldn't really be made in America the same way. They killed a real water buffalo, and it was just horrendous to look at. It was disgusting the way they killed it. I honestly could not believe that that was real, because I would have assumed that that's what it looks like. But, like, I man, I don't even know. Like, that was a real scene? Yeah, like, because I, I saw it in the documentary, and they had to, in the end, uh, they, they got away with it because, you know, there wasn't really, like, an animal rights thing in the Philippines. Um, but the American Humane Association, unwatchable because of, because of that oh wow and i guess it was i i personally don't mind like the ethics of it entirely because i think that's that's what they do anyways they they kill water buffalo like that to eat them so Mm -hmm. it's not like he was killing it for no reason that 
that was part of what their uh, traditions were, I think. In the well, first if season. I remember, if I remember correctly, so the behind the scenes of this is that Francis Ford Coppola had actually had actually hired an entire tribe to do this, and I believe that may have been one of the things they like that may have been one of their customs that he happened to not necessarily be involved in, but they did that at a very convenient time for him. Yeah. I, I don't think that was initially written in the movie. Yeah. So, which was kind of a strategy of uh, Coppola. Uh, Cause I, I noticed I was rewatching parts of the documentary today and he says, uh, cause he didn't, I, he didn't actually know what he was going to write for the third act going into this. Mm. So he said stuff like, what when I when I make this third act is partly gonna be like what the script kind of leads towards, but it's gonna be made through the insanity of the crew and just kind of what what Vietnam brings us, you know, or I guess the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it worked tremendously well. Uh, I, I I maybe not thematically. I I, I don't entirely think it, it was great like that, but it was just really like the the going cutting back and forth between the killing scenes was really intriguing to watch, and it really it was just pretty intense. In. Uh, I, I guess maybe it was like because uh, Willard finally became like it was like almost animalistic the way he murdered Kurtz, you know. So mm-hmm. that that might have been why uh, they did that. And uh, and yeah, and then and then the movie kind of ends. I'm not entirely sure. I don't understand the ending very much. Sort of. I I kind of wanted to say it was left in the air. Uh, what did you think? Because I'm I'm not sure if he called in the airstriker. I am fairly certain. He did not okay. because he leaves. Um, so he leaves a chef on the boat to call in the airstrike if he doesn't get back by 10. And he doesn't get back by 10. So in the Redux version, you see chef start to call in the airstrike, but you don't hear the response. Uh, and in the theatrical version, you don't see that scene at all. So, like, you don't see, you just see the next thing you see of chef is his head get delivered to uh willard um so i don't believe that chef was successful in calling in the airstrike and then at the end uh at the end again i think this might only be in the redux version you start hearing the um the radio chatter from the airstrike team trying to get back in touch with them and like they're basically saying hey should we do the airstrike or not and he doesn't respond and i think doesn't he turn off the radio yeah he does so my impression is that he doesn't call in the airstrike okay that I guess that makes sense. I was just because the, then there was that also that note from Kurtz he got, which was like, kill them all, bomb them all. Like, kind of like he, because first of all, it, it felt pretty obvious Kurtz kind of wanted to die. He makes us, he kind of tells Willard as much when he says, I, I would want my son to understand my thought process if no one else would. So, could you explain this to him? Uh, but then also, yeah, he, uh, Willard finds a note in one of his books, I think, or it was a paper that he wrote. Yeah, and I wish that they had explained what that paper was because um, in the book Heart of Darkness, that I believe is analogous to the report that he's making for his uh, for the people he's working for. But in this movie, there's no reason for him to make a similar report, or at the very least, they never explain it. So I really wish they did because that kind of comes out of nowhere, and it doesn't mean it's it's not like. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Like when you're watching it, you just see that as something he was writing in the meantime, like some report or something. He's just writing up what he's experiencing or something. Who knows? But like, I feel like that would have carried more weight if it had a similar role of he was supposed to deliver some report or something that they were waiting for. Because also, uh, Willard takes the report in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just think maybe in that last scene, there's 
Because it was pretty slow, and then a bunch of things kind of happen at once that aren't entirely explained slash thought through. Um, maybe it would have been nice for a little more context, a few of those. Yeah, it didn't matter that much, but like it would have it would have been nice. But yeah, anyways, uh, just kind of as a whole, the Apocalypse Now definitely feels like one, one of those event movies and like once-in-a-lifetime movies that we might never see the likes of again in Probably a similar not. vein. Um, in fact, like this movie, so this movie was obviously incredibly influential, but like what I noticed about this movie is I've seen, I noticed right from the documentary that I have seen this story before so many times. And I don't mean the story of the movie. I mean the story of the making of the movie even, because like the very first thing that came to mind when I started watching the documentary on this is that the documentary is clearly the basis for the movie Tropic Thunder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I realized that. I was like, that's hilarious because <laughs> I never understood what they were spoofing in Tropic Thunder. But that was really yeah. cool. Um, yeah, so I actually originally wanted to watch Tropic Thunder again before this, but I don't think that <laughs> Tropic Thunder is that useful to watch Entirely when talking about this movie. Like, clearly that's the inspiration for Tropic Thunder, but, like, Tropic Thunder has very little to do with Apocalypse. yeah. Uh, especially like I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> if Tropic Thunder like the movie they were making in that universe was more of a blockbuster. This was definitely it, I see that's the thing. No. It was like made as a blockbuster in my opinion, but it was the themes and like the way it was made and the script could not be further from it. The ins- well, it was just like with the insane amount of special effects and stuff, especially in that first scene when you're like. This is like this feels like an epic movie, but as a whole, well, like, this movie is not a blockbuster in any way, in my opinion. Well, I mean, it's not a current blockbuster, but I think it's very typical of the time. Like it was, uh, like you said, it was an epic movie, and I really think that it was. I think that's a good description of it. And at the time, you know, movies like that were what put butts in seats. Like this was well before Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, but Platoon and Full Metal Jacket were huge. And this movie was kind of similar to that. And, you know, people would turn up for the guy who did The Godfather. The Godfather isn't a typical blockbuster by any means. But, like, this movie is similar to it in enough ways, obviously because it's Francis Ford Coppola, where, like, I see that if people turned up for The Godfather, people are going to turn up for this movie. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, but it is, it is pretty different from The Godfather, too. Oh, very much so. Like, what these, those movies aren't super comparable, but they're similar scale. Yeah, that's fair. They're pretty long, thematically heavy movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I just as a whole, like I actually, I, I believe, like to ex- truly experience and enjoy Apocalypse Now, you actually have to watch like the documentary as well and read the book and stuff too, uh, because it's like the it's it's almost like it's more than them in a lot of ways um, yeah which which kind of feels like the way the movie was intended well uh, I think in, I, in terms of like when Coppola Coppola said it's not it's not even a war about VM it is yeah and I feel like this movie I mean to me that just says like I'm, I've watched this movie three times now and I could watch it three more times and then three more times and I get something new out of it every time yeah uh, truly like a feat of especially like this was an independent movie crazy yeah. to think about uh and like kind of the journey through uh through a, the 
Coppola had to make because I, I still can't believe he would start filming and not have a third act ready. Yeah, this was this is such a bizarre passion project because he started filming this from a completed script and basically rewrote the entire script as yeah. he was going. And yeah, during filming, but then also he when when uh, Marlon Brando came, he had to completely ditch his plan that he was leading towards during the whole shoot. Yeah, and the weirdest thing to me is he says this in the doc- in the documentary. Uh, when Marlon Brando came in, he had to ditch everything because Marlon Brando was not ready as he'd expected. And so he started talking to Marlon Brando. He's like, "Okay, so how do you want your character to be portrayed? Because like, if you if you know, with the way you are now and what you've told me so far, we can do your character like this." And he pitches him this fully formed, ready to go character that could make for a that, that, like. He clearly had an idea for that he could probably make a really good third act out of. And Marlon Brando's like, no, I don't really want to be portrayed like that. And so he has to redo it all again. So he went through like a bunch of drafts and ended up improvising the entire last act. Yeah, honestly, it's crazy that the last act worked as well as considering all the craziness that went in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in terms of that, it's impressive. And then like as a whole, I, I do think this took a huge toll on Coppola um it it was a success eventually because but the thing is like even post-production like it came out post-production was like two years I want to say because they stopped filming in 77 yes it was two years consistently delayed until uh I think summer of 79 I believe it premiered at Cannes in 79 but it premiered at Cannes as the very first ever work in progress to premiere at Cannes yeah it wasn't even a whole movie yeah so like with all this i i definitely crazy feat i i think it took a huge toll on coppola though um because this was this was a huge like the end of a huge run for him in my opinion where you had like yeah. the godfather part one and part two and then this movie um to end off the decade for the 70s but then like he never really in my opinion he and i i think i think not it's not really up for debate he never reached this peak at all not even close no, he would go on to create a lot more movies, many of which were, some of which were even really good, and some of which got most, and, and well, many of which were even good, and many of which even got like, you know, critical acclaim, but nothing nearly at the heights of Apocalypse Now. Yeah, and it just kind of makes you wonder if, if this movie was like a little easier to make for him, if it would have gone on to make more amazing stuff. But I, I totally understand why just kind of take the steam out of anyone creatively in, in terms of like the all the stuff, all the, the, the hell he had to go to make this, especially like with the financial risk. He, he stood to lose everything from this and he, yeah. he didn't even think he was going to work, especially because like when I listen to him talk, he, he truly sounds like a visionary of filmmaking, really has a passion for it and this drive to make make things that people haven't experienced before mm-hmm. so yeah it was a amazing experience personally though I, I i think i would rate it like maybe i think 8.5 maybe a 9 out of 10 um i i i think it's overly long i think there are parts that aren't that great but just as an experience it, it's like a movie that i i could talk about for like a really long time and very very memorable and uh yeah. i had a great time watching it to me, this is an easy nine. Like, I might go further. I wouldn't give it... I don't know... I'm, I'm always resistant to give a 10 out of 10, but this is an easy, easy nine, maybe a 9.5. Like, I watched this movie three times already this week, and, like, 
if I didn't have other stuff I needed to do this week, I would not mind watching it another three times this week. It was so good. And while I do understand what you're saying about it being overlong, it was overlong in a way that I personally really liked. Like none of the scenes dragged. You just had to be ready for there to be more scenes. And each of those scenes individually was great. Like I felt like um, I was engaged through everything, even though like, you know, we talked about the, uh, the French, the, the scene where they meet all the French people. It could, uh, that could easily be cut. It could. I was fully engaged during that scene. I was very ready for that. And like the same with the Playboy Bunny scene. I, you could drop that scene easily. And Francis Ford Coppola did twice. And I still was very, very into that scene. And not just because of the obvious nudity, but still. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I I, I can't argue with that. I, I do feel very strongly about this. Like, even even saying it's a 9, like, I want to say it's a 10, just in terms of, like, what, like, how cool it... Because, like, I, I, I don't always think a movie's purely defined by pure quality. It's just how you... I think the biggest part is, like, how you feel watching. Yeah. How 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 memorable it is and how different it is and stuff like that. So um, yeah, agree on all points. But definitely like to watch this. But yeah, this was an extremely long episode, but yeah, I I'd say this movie this was deserving. Yeah, by far. <laughs> but if uh, any movie deserved it, it was probably the. I think so because honestly, we didn't even touch on a lot of elements of this. Like I had mentioned, I I'm gonna bring this up so that people who that are listening to this don't realize don't. Now, realize that I also know this is a loose end. My favorite character in this movie was played by Dennis Hopper, and he's a photojournalist right at the end. We did not talk about him at all. We're at the end of this podcast. We're not going to talk about him at all. But we totally could. And yeah, we there's could. a lot of stuff in this movie that, you know, we didn't even get the chance to touch on. And yeah. That's so, just the type of movie packed. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm really glad I watched this. So thank you very much for suggesting. Perfect. All right. What are we now, watching next? Oh well, we're gonna we're gonna actually do another war movie next. So, uh, but Perfect. but this okay. is this is what's exciting about this one. So we are currently recording this in 2020. So I'm sorry to date this for uh, anybody who thought this was an episode from you know back when we started in 1975, uh, before this movie came out. But uh, our next movie is gonna be a movie that literally just came out. Actually, uh, we're gonna watch *The Five Bloods*, and it's gonna be the first movie we talk about by Spike Lee. Perfect. Exciting. Crazy director. Yeah, uh, I'm actually super excited. I don't know if I'm actually, I don't know if I am qualified to talk about a Spike Lee movie, but like, <laughs> I'm going to give it my best. Yeah, yeah. I, I will too. I, I doubt I'll entirely understand. We'll, yeah. we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited for it. I've heard very, I've heard early opinions that it is an easy contender for best picture next year. And I've already heard that like, like I've heard one person already say, you know, I'm calling it. It's best picture. Damn. So we got high praise. All right, cool. But yeah. We'll, we'll see you for the next episode. Uh, what's the last word, Jeff? This is the end.